Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting with verse 18. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity, the word of the Lord. Man, so glad that you guys are with us today. Thank you for being with us. Um, I'm excited to jump back into the book of Ecclesiastes with you. So before we do that, let me say a few things. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Ecclesiastes 2. If you're new to the Bible, trying to figure out where, where that book is, my favorite way to find it, because it's a little tough, is just table of contents and go there. And so I'll let you turn there. And while you're turning there, I want to say too, if you're with us and uh, you would describe yourself as someone that isn't a Christian or someone that has some skepticism or doubt, uh, listen, all of your questions are, they're not off limits and we're not af- afraid of them. doesn't mean we have the answers to all of them, but we'd love to walk with you and get either a beer or coffee with you and process some of the claims of Christianity and who Jesus says that he is. So We'd love to do that with you. Um, while you're turning to Ecclesiastes 2, I want to just tell you the story. Some of you may recall a few years ago, maybe you read this online somewhere, there was a fictional conversation that unfolded between the captain of a U.S. aircraft carrier and his counterpart, and uh, this was circling online, I think it was on Facebook. I, I want to pretend that the world is actually okay, so I don't get on Facebook, um, but if you got on Facebook, you might have seen this story. It goes something like this. On a dark, foggy night, a ship came upon the light of another vessel. The captain radioed his counterpart. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Through the crackly radio came the reply, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The captain stood his ground. He radioed, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And again came the reply, no, I say again, you divert your course. Outraged, the captain spoke loudly into the radio. This is the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three, desert de- three, three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees North, that's one five degrees north. Then there's a little bit of a pause. And after a few seconds of silence, the voice on the other end replied, well, this is a lighthouse captain, so it's really your call. Now, here's why I share that story, this fictional story. Um, It's because the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of like that lighthouse captain. 
He's radioing out to us. He's calling out and he's saying, hey, if you want to find the good life, then where you're currently headed is going to lead you to a collision. It's not going to, you, you won't find it in the path that you've chosen. Here's the reality. Everyone in this room and everybody in our city, whether you're a Christian or not, is completely irrelevant on this one. All of us are pursuing the good life. Nobody wants to not have the good life. And we've set our eyes on things like money or sex or uh, work or you name it, any, any number of things that we're looking to to provide meaning and significance and value for our life. So we've set our sights on these things and we're actively steering the ship of our lives towards those things. And the book of Ecclesiastes functions a lot like this radio, this lighthouse captain. He's saying, you won't find it. It's not what you think. Don't look for the good life in these things under the sun. And our response often is kind of bullheaded stubbornness and then maybe even anger. We go, no, 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 that can't be true. We can find the good life in these different ways. But if we're wise, then we'll listen to what he has to say because he's tried all that there is to try and it's come, he's come up empty, right? So last week we talked about uh, the reality of time and eternity, how we are creatures bound by time and God has written eternity on our hearts. And what does that tell us about who we are as humans and who God is and why we're here and all of that? Today, what the author of Ecclesiastes is gonna do is he's gonna hold up two very common things that our world and our culture holds out and says, if you want to have significance, if you wanna have value, if you wanna find ultimate meaning and pleasure and satisfaction, if you want the good life, then it's going to be found in work and it's going to be found in wealth. So that's what he's going to talk about with us today is work and wealth. Here's the question. How is America doing when it comes to work and wealth? How are we faring as a nation when it comes to work and wealth? Well, we're actually faring pretty well when you look at the research. Uh, the Pew Research conducted a recent study to see how Americans compared to the global middle class. So here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the global middle class. How are, the, how are uh, Americans faring in comparison? More than half, 56% of Americans were considered high income by the global standard. And another 32% were considered upper middle class. Right, so here's what that means. More than half are high, are high income families, and about another 32% are upper middle income. So if you add all that together, here's what that means. That means that about almost every nine out of 10 Americans has a standard of living that's above the global middle income standard. In other words, we're doing pretty great. Nine out of every 10 people in America just about makes more money than most of the world. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who is, uh, uh, he serves as the special advisor to the United Nations Secretary General, brilliant guy. Uh, he's also a professor at Columbia University. He noted the following. He said that income per person in the U.S. has increased roughly three times since 1960. So for the few of you in the room that you remember 1960 well, uh, we're actually now today making more, three times more uh, per person than we were in 1960. So money and wealth 
We're doing pretty well as a country. But, but it's not just money and wealth. It's actually even our work. And, and this is just this weird, awkward thing that millennials have. Like, we actually want to try to create a really fun and satisfying environment for our job. Have you noticed? This is a value that millennials have. If you talk to your great-grandpa or grandma, it's like, hey, did you enjoy your job? They'd look at you like, what does that have to do with anything? It was my job. We went to work. We did our thing. Like, we, we, we know that we had to make money. That's what we did. But if you ask millennials, it's not really them that are getting interviewed for positions. They're actually the ones that are interviewing various jobs to see if they can find the most fun, satisfying job out there that's also going to pay them. Can I just make a side comment here? The reason they pay you is because nobody wants to do it. If, if you wanted to do it, they wouldn't have to pay you, right? So he, here's, what ha, here's what's happening. There's this new trend where we're creating these really satisfying work environments, and many large firms are now spending money on happiness coaches. That's a real thing. Team-building exercises. Th- those could be okay. Game plays. I have no idea what that is. And fun sultants, which just sounds awesome, right? What are you? I'm a fun sultant, not consultant. I put the fun in that, right? Uh, Here's a true story. Google actually hired a, quote, chief happiness officer. That's an official position that they pay a salary for, chief happiness officer. When uh, uh, kind of an article, a news article asked this guy, hey, what's your goal? The chief happiness officer of Google, what's your goal? He said this, and I quote, to enlighten minds, open hearts, create world peace. So no big deal right? He's just very, he's setting his sights very small. Here's what I want to do. I want to provide, you know, I'm the chief happiness officer, and I want to create world peace. So that's what I want to do. Now, here's what, here's what you would think. When you add all this together, what it's saying is that we're really, really well paid. We're making three times more now per person on average than we did in 1960, and our jobs are even more concerned with creating a fun and satisfying work environment so that you can go home feeling personally fulfilled, you would think we would be the happiest people on the planet. And here's the shocker. That's actually not true. When you paint this picture, here's what happens. When you contrast the findings of here's how much we make and here's how we think about work and our jobs with, with kind of the results that were found in the World Happiness Report, that the UN compiled, and yes, that is a real report, the World Happiness Report. They plug in all these equations to figure out the happiness of a given country or nation. And so when you plug in all of these things, how does America fare when it comes to happiness? Well, Jeffrey Sachs, he says this, uh, the central paradox of the modern American economy is this. Income per person has increased roughly three times since 1960, but measured happiness has not risen. The situation has gotten worse in re- recent years, he says. Per capita, gross domestic product, that's, that's goods produced and services provided, uh, is still rising. So we're producing more goods, we're providing more services, but happiness is now actually falling. According to another recent study done by Pew Research Center called Measuring the Good Life Around the World. This is another real study. Here's what they found. Income and wealth, as well as earnings, are shown to be the highest in the U.S., but in work and life balance, we have the lowest score reported in the amount of time that we take off. 
Uh, in fact, America leads the industrialized world when it comes to industrial work hours. We work more industrial hours than any other nation on the planet. So here's a couple other things just as a, as a side note. Uh, major depressive dis- disorder affects approximately, affects approximately 14.8 million American adults, 14.8 million, with an annual increase of about 20%. And studies have shown that from 1999 to 2010, so just a, a short time frame, the suicide rate among Americans aged 35 to 64 actually increased by nearly 30%. So let me paint all of this picture for you and put it all together. Collectively, we're more wealthy than we've ever been. We care more about creating a satisfying work environment than we ever have. And ironically and sadly, we are less happy, we are less satisfied, we are more depressed and we are more overworked than we've ever been. It's safe to say, just looking at the facts, Christian or not, that our relationship to work and wealth is profoundly broken. Something is wrong with the way that we respond and handle these two realities. And what's gonna happen today is the author of Ecclesiastes wants to probe and push and and kind of poke at these realities of work and wealth. And, And he wants to do two things for us really basically. The first thing that he wants to do is he wants to be that lighthouse captain that shouts out to us and says, you will not find the good life in work or in wealth. You just can't find it. And he doesn't want you to take his word for it. He wants to show you why that is and the problems of work and wealth under the sun. And here's the second thing that he wants to do. He, he wants to then help us understand how do we respond in a world where work and wealth are natural, inescapable realities of every human? How do we respond and lean into having a job and making money? And what does that look like for us, especially if we're trying to follow Jesus while doing it? So that's what he's gonna do. So the first thing, why work and wealth cannot provide the good life. There, there are a lot of things that he's gonna give us, but I just wanna pull out three realities that I think are, are poignant and helpful for us. Here's the first one. Reality number one, everything that you acquire and achieve will ultimately go to someone else. Everything that you acquire and achieve will ultimately go to someone else. Look at these depressing words in chapter two, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. I hated my job, I hated the work, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity or meaninglessness. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, no matter how healthy I am, no matter how much I work out and go to the gym, no matter what right food choices I decide to eat, there's coming a day where I'm gonna die and all of the stuff that I've achieved at my job and all of the things that I've acquired and all the wealth and all the possessions and everything that I own is going to go to someone and chances are it's gonna go to someone else that isn't as wise as I was or as cautious and careful with that stuff as I was and maybe, just maybe, they won't appreciate it but they're gonna get at all this stuff anyway, even though they didn't work for it. 
Everything that you do at your job, there's coming a day where that grind of going in on a Monday from 8 to 5 or, or 7 to 6 or whatever it is that you do, that grind that you do and, and you put in all this work, there's coming a day where you die and either it goes away completely or it gets passed on to someone else. But the point is, no one really cares about that stuff that you acquired and you achieved. It's a hard reality and he's poking this bruise that we have. He wants us to think about it. Let, let me say it like this. Um, my great aunt, she, uh, she was really into coin collecting. She was one of those like avid, weird coin collectors. The ones that like they sell like a gold dollar on TV for like $47, which I need to get in that business, by the way. They're like here's this dollar coin that's worth $47. Um, and, and people just buy it up like crazy and they collect all these rare coins. So that's what she spent her entire life doing, just collecting all these coins. When she passed away, she actually gave me her uh, silver dollar coin collection. And he, just to like il illustrate this reality of like sometimes it gets passed on to someone that doesn't care, uh, I'm in the process of trying to sell that silver dollar coin collection because I have no use for silver dollars. I want money, right? I, I want actual cash. So if you need a big binder full of silver dollar coins, talk to me afterwards. We can work out a deal, right? So my aunt, if she knew this, she would just be devastated. Like, what do you, you, you are, you are all this stuff that I've achieved and I've acquired it's going to this fool that doesn't even care, right? Life on earth is a lot like the U.S. president's term in office. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever thought about this? A president works unbelievably hard for four, sometimes even eight years, only to have the next president step in and work equally hard to undo every single thing that that president did. That's your life on earth. You work and you achieve and you acquire for what? It goes to someone else. All of life is this way. Homeowners, you know this. Uh, you spent time and money on your house. You've spent energy painting it, repairing it, and decorating it, and fixing it up, and, and getting it just the way you want. But here's the reality. You'll probably sell it, and they will probably repaint it, and they will probably redesign it, and they'll probably repair or undo the repairs that you did, and maybe, just maybe, they might even trash out your house because they didn't care as much as you did. This is the world that we live in. I thought about this when we were in our new facility. Sean and I got there early one day for one of the demo days, and uh, here we are. We walked into some of these, these rooms that had walls that we needed to tear out and tile that was laid that we needed to rip up, and Sean and I are just going to town on these walls, knocking these walls down, and I thought to myself, and I think I even said it out loud, this is Ecclesiastes. Uh, at one point, a general contractor was so proud of this facility he laid the tile, he built these walls, and he stood back and he looked at it and he, and he saw, like, man, I, I've done some good, significant work here. I've built this beautiful gym. What, what, a, what an accomplishment. And then just a few short later, there's a bunch of uh, Hanyongs in there that really don't know what they're doing, just tearing up a bunch of stuff and knocking down walls, undoing all of the work that he did. That's what he's saying, except it's on a life scale. Everything about your life is like this. In fact, Solomon's heir biblically, is a guy named Rehoboam. Solomon was the wealthiest person in his day. This is a true story. He was a real person. This is a real king. He, he was the wealthiest person in his day, but his son, Rehoboam, his, his heir, squandered most of his wealth and, listen, lost ten-twelfths of his kingdom. It only took one generation for his fear to be realized. He built all this stuff. He achieved all this stuff. Why? For what? Everything that you acquire and everything that you achieve will ultimately go to someone else. You need to think about that. 
Here's the second reality that he wants to put in front of us. And this one's hard for us to hear and even harder for us to believe. Money itself can never satisfy the human soul. Money itself cannot satisfy the human soul. Look at chapter five, verse 10. Here's what he says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is the wealthiest man of his day saying this. He goes on in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Uh, Many of you know this man, John D. Rockefeller, uh, John D. Rockefeller, if you don't know, most of you do know a little bit about him, but he was widely considered to be the wealthiest American of all time and the richest person in modern history. Uh, according to Forbes magazine, his net worth was the modern equivalent, listen to this, of $392 billion. That's like an imaginary number to me, $392 billion. To put that in perspective, Bill Gates, who is the wealthiest person in the U.S. right now, is, his net worth is $89.2 billion. Peanuts compared to this guy. When someone asked him how much money was enough for Rockefeller to be satisfied, he famously retorted, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more is the mantra of every single human heart in this room. You have money, how much do I need to be okay? Just a little bit more. This man had $392 billion in his response to the question of how much do you need? I just need a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. 10 years ago, this is true of most of you in the room, not all of you, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you had an ideal number in your head of how much you needed to make for your salary to feel comfortable, to feel like there was a little bit of a financial cushion, to feel like you weren't going from paycheck to paycheck and you could purchase some of those fun things that you wanted. You are now most likely making that imaginary number that you had in your head 10 or 15 years ago and you're still feeling like you need another number, it's raised now, to feel like you've got a cushion, to feel like you're not going paycheck to paycheck, to feel like you would be able to have some freedom to buy some of the things that your heart desires. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. And here's the problem. It's not just that you can never be satisfied by money because this is this, etern- this material thing that you're trying to, to shove deep down into your eternal soul that desires something much grander and bigger and more beautiful than money. Not only that, but the more money you have, this is true, the more problems you have. Let, let me just quote this, this well-known philosopher, Notorious B.I.G., right? Mo money, mo problems. I, I, feel, I feel as white as that sounded when I said that. The more you have, the more stress you have. The more anxiety you have, the, the, the more burden you have. The more money you have, the more people are there around you to, to care for it. And to, it's just more complicated. It's more messy. The more you have, it's not an easier life that you get. It's a more difficult life that you get. We know this from stories that we have heard about or read about lottery winners And can we just pause for a minute? I know that we all think that we're the exception to the rule here and if we won the lottery, we would steward it well and we would, you know, get an investor and we would, we would have a retirement for, for decades and we would, we would, you know, we'd set us up on like monthly. No, you wouldn't because you're just like everybody else. Here's the reality. 
the Atlantic, the news article, they did a news article um, on lottery winners that I read years ago. It was fantastic, really interesting. It's called A Treasury of Terribly Sad Stories of Lotto Winners, written by Jen Dole. And here's what she did. She collected dozens and dozens of people that had won the lottery and watched their life after they won the lottery. And she basically just kind of chronicled what happened to them. Here are just a few of the sad things that took place. Poverty after spending all of the money on drugs and prostitutes. Poverty again, after excessive gambling. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. The loss of lifelong friends, being looked down on in the community for the winnings, ending up in debt, true story, for failing to manage the money properly, a descent into crime and bankruptcy, getting murdered, committing suicide, shocking how many lotto winners have committed suicide, and a host of other horrible things. And here's how they conclude the article. Jen concludes the article like this. You're actually more lucky if you don't win the lottery than you are if you win the lottery. You're better off and you're more lucky if you win it, if you don't win it, versus if you win it. Can you pause with me for just a minute and ask the question, why is that true? Jim Carrey the actor, he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Can you just be wise enough to listen to the voices of people that have achieved and acquired the things that you have never achieved or acquired and have them tell you straight to your face, it doesn't work. I haven't found the good life. Money itself can never satisfy a human soul. Here's the third reality he wants you to see. Life is ruthlessly unpredictable. Life is ruthlessly unpredictable. Look at Ecclesiastes 5 verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. So this is something that he's observed. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Here's the other problem about finding significance and ultimate value and meaning in your job or in your wealth in your vocation. The other problem with that is that life is ruthlessly unpredictable and ultimately, ultimately, in a very terrifying way, you have no real control over certain events that take place. And this guy, here's what happened. He's hustling. He's trying to make money for his family. He's trying to provide an inheritance for his son. And he's investing and he's working and he's hoarding all of this money. And then something happens. He invests in a bad business venture. It goes south and he loses all of it all of it. We've heard these stories. These are real stories where people go from incredible wealth to a bad business venture happens and now they have nothing. And his point isn't just this bad business venture. His point is life is ruthless. It's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. You're finding significance and value in something that is very, very unstable. Let me explain it like this. On May 17th and 18th of uh, 2013, my wife and I had been putting off 
all of these work things around the house that we really needed to do. Um, our yard was looking like a mess. I, I'd been looking at my flower bed for a long time and wanted to redo it. There, would, there were parts of our house that we had repainted and other parts that we hadn't, so we wanted to consistently get our house painted. Um, we, we wanted to out, you know, kind of really do up our, uh, our back door patio, our outdoor patio, so that as we had people over, it would be a, a nice space. Uh, we needed to go grocery shopping and organize some stuff. So for two whole days, we just worked our tails off. We worked like crazy. I was out on the flower bed. I dug up all the stuff. I planted new stuff. I got tiki torches in the back because who doesn't want tiki torches in the back of their house? I strung lights everywhere. got my fire pit looking good. Uh, we painted. We organized our whole house. This is all true. We, we, uh, my wife went grocery shopping and loaded our fridge full of groceries so that we would have food for the next two or three weeks or so. And then on, on May 19th, we just sat down and we enjoyed it. We drank deeply of a house that was finished. And on May 20th, I left my house for the last time because a giant tornado swept through and completely obliterated all of our house. That's why I never mow my lawn ever. It's, it's like, no, not gonna do it. Probably a tornado, right? James 4, here's what he says. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. (laughs) He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is a bruise that you have and he's poking it because he wants you to see this life is meaningless if this is where you're looking for significance, if this is where you're looking for satisfaction and ultimate pleasure to be satisfied at the deepest level under the sun with work and with wealth, you will not find it. You have no control. It's a little terrifying, but it's true. Life is ruthlessly unpredictable. So what do we do? I don't know if you could deny this. I think if you're wise in the room, you hear what he's saying. If you're a fool, you're like that captain. No, you divert your course. If you're wise, you're listening and you're thinking, what do we do with this reality? And how do I now engage my job? And how do I engage money? Because can we be honest, work and money are a necessary part of our lives. You can't just wipe your hands and decide, I'm not gonna have a job or I'm not gonna have any money and I'm gonna survive. You cannot survive without a job or without money. So how do we live in this world in relation to money and work? Well, here's what we've done. We've taken these things that the Bible Bible is gonna tell us are gifts from God. Money is a gift. Work is a gift. And what we've done is we've elevated this to the status of a God and we're demanding that our job give us and name us and define us what only God can give us and only the way that God can name and define us. We're wanting created things to be God for us and to give us a level of significance and value and profound satisfaction in money and work that only God can give us. And we were created to work. And we were created to have things and have possessions and have money. We were created to have this stuff. But what we've done is a tragic confusion of roles where this stuff has become God and God is nothing to us. And now significance and value has to come from these things. Here's what Jesus has done. Jesus has come from beyond the sun for a group of people that have rejected him for stuff, for their vocation and for their money, 
And in mercy, rather than squashing us in mercy, what Jesus did is he left the comfort and safety of home, of his home. He left his wealth and his possessions. And the Bible says that he who is rich became poor for our sake so that we, by his poverty, could become rich. And Jesus, rather than hoarding, Jesus gave away. And Jesus, rather than kind of working for his own, what he did is he worked for the good of others and he laid down his life on a cross and he died in the place of lawbreakers and rebels like you and I. And he rose from the dead. He's alive today and he's beyond the sun. And every human heart in here and out there, Christian or not, has this profound, deep craving to be satisfied and to be okay and to have pleasure and to have significance. And it's found only in Jesus who is beyond the sun. And here's what happens. When Jesus becomes God to you, rather than stuff being your God, then now all of a sudden you get the freedom and the ability to enjoy the stuff that God has given you in the way that God intended you to enjoy it. You know, the irony is you can have something and not have the ability to enjoy something. But God, what he does is he gives us the thing And then he gives us the power to enjoy the thing when he is the thing that we are finding identity and pleasure in. So listen to what he says at the very end of Ecclesiastes 2. And I find this interesting. This is like him driving our eyes beyond the sun. He says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So in other words, Joy is predicated on God giving the gift of enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Look at how he ends chapter five at the very end of talking about just the the meaninglessness of all this. He says something profound. He says in chapter 518, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. For that is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Some of you are confused. Like, wait a minute. He just said on one hand that work and wealth are meaningless. And then on the other hand, he says, therefore, because they're meaningless, find enjoyment in your work and in your wealth. How how is this true? This is what we call a paradox. And here's what he's saying. He's saying there's a difference between having things and having the power and the capacity to enjoy things. One author puts it like this, and it's really helpful. God is the one who gives things, and God is the one who gives the power to enjoy things. These are distinct gifts, just as a can of peaches and a can opener are distinct gifts. The believer is given both, which is simply another way of saying that he is given the capacity for enjoyment. Solomon is preparing the way for us to come to a great truth. The gift of God does not make this meaningless go away. The gift of God makes this vanity enjoyable. Here's what he's saying. Our culture is holding out to you, if you want significance, 
It's found in money. It's found in vocation. It's found in all of these things. And, and, and what the Bible is holding out to you is an alternative story. No, ultimate significance and value is found in God. If you want it, come to God. He will accept you as you are and he will give you the thing that you're looking for. Then all of this other stuff starts to make more sense and you can use it the way that you were, in, you were designed to use it. It's the difference between having a can of peaches and having a can opener for the can of peaches, which is a really bad analogy if you hate peaches. But it's, it's a great analogy if you like peaches. Everybody has a can of peaches. God has the can opener. And what we're doing is we're valuing this can of peaches. This is what we love. This is what we value. This is what we worship. And God is saying, no, 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 no. Come to me. And whether you have or you have not is really irrelevant. Whether job is going well or not is really irrelevant because your ultimate security is rooted in me. And then that frees you up to enjoy food in a proper way and wine in a proper way and work in a proper way and money and possessions in a proper way. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. So today, here's how I want to close this out. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I think you just have an invitation. The invitation is you're going to listen to one message. Why have you chosen to listen to the message of culture and wholesale rejected the message of Christianity? Because it is valid. It is offering an alternative invitation, an alternative message to you to find value and significance in Christ and what he has done, rather than in all the stuff down here. The decision's yours. He's inviting you to come to him. If you are a Christian, can we just confess that we continue to reverse all of this order and put other things above God and value them and worship them and and love them in a way that's harmful and destructive, not just to ourselves, but to the people around us? Today, the invitation is to repent of worshiping these other gods that we've done throughout the week and to come to Jesus and to set our eyes on him and to worship him as the only true God, then and only then we're freed up to find enjoyment in all the good gifts that God has given us in life.